Amen. We're starting a new series. Uh, it's a nine-part series on the book of Isaiah. It'll take us through November and December through Christmas. Uh, Isaiah actually has a lot of kind of Christmassy stuff going on in it. That's what it's more about carefully. Uh, Isaiah lived in Jerusalem at the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the rulers of Judah and Jerusalem. And he spoke two two messages, and this is important to kind of keep in mind. He first spoke a message of God's judgment, which is not always fun, uh, but he warned the corrupt leaders that their rebellion against God and their injustices towards uh, people and their oppression and their idolatry uh, would not go unchecked. God was going to uh, deal with them. It was going to come at a cost the way they'd been living. And God was going to use the empires of Assyria and Babylon to bring the people into exile if they persisted in what they were doing. So he has this announcement of judgment, God's judgment, but he also announces a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God, even though he was going to bring the people through this period of judgment, he was also going to fulfill all of his covenant promises that he made to Israel. So he was going to bring a new king from David's line, from 2 Samuel. If you remember our series on David, we talked a lot about that. So Isaiah believed God's going to still come through for Israel. He's going to bring back this king. Uh, he's going to bless the nations uh, that through Israel, uh, God's peace and, and restored relationship is going to flow out. And uh, all of this is going to be done at some point. Uh, there's this message of judgment, and then there's this message of hope. And that hope compelled Isaiah to speak out against the issues that he saw in his country, Judah, in that day. So if you if you think of Isaiah as kind of two parts, uh, chapters 1 to 39 really hammer in this message of judgment. And then you get a switch, and chapters kind of 40 to 66 turn and pick up this, this idea of hope and kind of run on it, the cross of hope. And all of that, you might say, what does that have to do with me? But all of this in Isaiah, it calls us to think about God's all-embracing love for us. In kind of two ways, that God is a holy judge, he's a holy judge, but he's also a compassionate redeemer. He's a holy judge who deals with sin and injustice, but he's also a compassionate redeemer who loves us. And so let's jump into this. Um, I think it's important for us to keep those two things in mind, because in the same way, we need to wake up to our own sinfulness and our own brokenness, don't we? We need to be made aware of those things, but we also need to hear God's word of compassion over us. Uh, God wants to he loves you, he wants to forgive you, he wants to renew you, and he invites you back to himself. This is the God we find here in Isaiah. So in this passage, keep your Bibles open, there's kind of three movements that I want us to, to pick up on. The first is Isaiah hammers in this idea of a Jewish rebellion. This is the first movement, it's kind of verses one to nine or so, the wickedness of Judah. And then he deals with the religiosity. This is verses 10 to 15 or so. And then he calls them to repentance. So he deals with the rebellion. He deals with the religiosity, which is them trying to deal with it on their own. It doesn't work. And then he calls them to repentance. Okay. So let's, let's do that first bit, the part about rebellion. This is Judah and her wickedness and her sin and her justice and all that. Sin. But look at how this starts. Look how Isaiah describes God's heart for his people. You look at verse 2, what does it say? Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. So God's, Isaiah is calling all of creation to kind of stand as witness to what he's going to say. 
The Lord has spoken. Children I reared up and brought up, but they rebelled against me. God's saying, you're like children that I've raised from birth, and now you've turned away from me. Uh, any parents that maybe live that? It's a hard reality. Uh, that you've raised children for however long that might be, and your children turn away from you, and that relationship is broken or strange. I mean, terrible, terrible, terrifying thing. That's, us, that's, that's what's happened with us. I raised you, I brought you up, I, I nurtured you, and now you've come to this point uh, where you've chosen to rebel against me. You've forgotten about me altogether. And so God's heart anguishes for broken people, lost people, the way a parent's heart breaks for a lost child. It's the picture we get here. And then he says, even the, even the ox and the donkeys know where to go, but you don't know where to go. Which I feel is a bit of a slight, right? It's like, look, the animals know what to do. The animals know where, what's best for them, where life is, who's going to nourish them, and you don't even know what's going on, right? Israel's so far gone, they don't even understand they've forsaken God. So look at verse 4. He says, uh, they're full of iniquity, people laden with iniquity, that they're evil, they're, they're corrupt. And then in verse 5, he says, why will you be struck out? Like, why, why are you doing this? Why do you continue to rebel against God? What's going on here? Why? And he says, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is sick. There's this idea that Judah is so sick in her sinfulness. She doesn't even, she doesn't even realize, as a nation, she doesn't even realize how bad things have gotten. So why do you keep living like this? It's like their minds are closed to the sickness and the sinfulness that's going on. So there's no soundness no soundness at all in their thinking or in their living. And then what's interesting, and I think we forget this sometimes when it comes to uh, our lives with the Lord, but he, he says all of this is sort of happening within you, right? Our own sinfulness, your own wickedness, the things that the things that you do that you shouldn't do, uh, the things that you do against the Lord. He says that's, that's sort of an internal reality, but that internal reality matches what's happening externally. So look at verse 7. He says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, the foreigners are devouring your land. It's desolate. It's overthrown. It's pretty, like he's hammering it home, right? Like, it's really, really bad. And the nation is suffering. You as a people are suffering. The land is suffering. It's, this is not great. It's really not good. But this outward reality of land is matching your inward state. Isn't that interesting? So that when the people are not in right relationship with God, the country itself starts to suffer. And then, as if to hammer it home even worse, Isaiah uses probably the worst image possible to describe Judah's sinfulness. What does he say? You become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And why is that so bad, you might ask? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah are found back in the book of Genesis. And we read there that they are cities of just incredible seething wickedness. That they're so bad that it's just so it's it's disgustingly bad. And after God's patience, much patient scrutiny over these people, God says, I'm gonna have to deal with them. I'm gonna have to deal with them. Because he's a holy judge. And this this happens in the relationship between God and Abraham. And Abraham says, well, Lord, if there's some good people there, would you spare the city? Like, if there's 50 good people, would that be enough to kind of hold off on your judgment? And God's like, yeah, yeah, if I find 50 good ones, I'll hold up. 
And Abram says, okay, that's good. And he starts to lower it. He says, well, what about if there's only 30? You know, would they count? Would, would you hold off? And God says, yeah. Uh, what about, and it ends up with a low number. What about only 10? You know, what if there's only a couple? God says, even if there's only a couple, I'll hold off. And what happens? God doesn't hold off. What does it mean? There's no one. There's no one who's going to be killed. There's no one left in the city. And so God, this is the thing we need to remember about God's judgment. God gives them what they wanted. God is allowing them to live out what they've already chosen to make their lives about. So when 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 Sodom and Gomorrah are living into this evilness and this wickedness that goes against life and goes against God, God finally says, okay, this isn't just about giving them what they deserve, it's giving them what they've already chosen. Giving them the full results of what they get. So God gives it to them. So what's that say here? God's now calling Israel, right? His chosen people, his his child who he's he's raised up, who he deeply loves, he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. They literally become God's enemies. This is probably the lowest, the lowest we can go, right? And what does all this tell us is that Judah needs to wake up from her sinfulness before God's gonna have that. What do you do when someone kind of calls you out on something? Uh, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about uh, this kind of silly example, but you know when you go to the doctor, and the doctor's like, um, you should probably do a couple things. You know, like, uh, maybe you need exercise more, or you need to get more sleep, or you need to change something for your diet, or you, know, you need to lose a bit of weight, or, or you need to take this medication, or you need to like, do this exercise, you know, you need to do some physio or something. Uh, it's one thing to kind of sit in the office and go like, oh, right, yeah. That makes sense. Perfect. Yeah, got it. Uh, and walk out the door and just forget the whole thing. You know? Get home and be like, you know what? I feel like you're into that. Or maybe start it for a little bit, you know? Do it for a few days and then be like, I don't feel like changing how I diet this. I don't feel like getting more exercise. I don't care. I want to do this. It's almost a little bit of what's happening here. Sometimes there's things we know we should do, but we don't. And after a while, we just stop caring. We just stop caring about doing the things that we should do. Even though we can pull it, we can stop caring altogether. And, and that when that happens, we need a really big wake up call. Big wake up call. There's a similar situation here with, with Israel, I think. Uh, what happens in your heart, folks, uh, indicates the way in which you're going to live. Whatever you foster in your heart is going to find itself out in your actions somewhere. And so when you give yourself to sin, as a nation, the whole people's going to suffer. And that's part of what's going on here. But then here's the other issue. Sometimes when things are really bad, we try and fix it on our own, don't we? We'll think, well, maybe I won't follow the doctor's orders, but I will do what I think is best in my own eyes. Uh, whether that's ignoring a situation or trying to do something to fix a relationship and it you know, totally goes sideways, whatever it might be. But sometimes we try and make things better all on our own. And that's what Isaiah addresses next. So that whole first point, where are we in the sermon? That whole first point was dealing with Judah's rebellion. And God, through Isaiah, just hammers them home and says, you guys are, it's not good. 
philosophical garden. You need to change. And then he, he points to the sin of religiosity. Let me jump into this, because I think this one really hits home for us, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Look at verse 10. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, rulers of Sodom, you hear the teaching of the God and people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I will not burn offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. What's this all about? Well, the people at the time, the, the, the worship system involved animal sacrifice. So what's going on is, is Judah is continuing on in the worship that she's been doing for years and years and years that God has given her. Uh, they're carrying it out, but it's not making any difference at all. They're doing the sacrifices, but they're doing it with the spirit of hypocrisy. And so the whole, the whole thing, folks, and sometimes it's going to be hard for us as kind of 21st century people to deal with animal sacrifices. What do we do with that, right? Uh, we don't do that here. Right? Yeah. Um, what is, what's going on? Why do they need to do that? The whole thing, we won't jump into the whole thing, the whole thing is given by God to the people, and, and the worship is meant to transform their hearts, that as they, as they offer the animal sacrifices, they're, they're beginning to realize that their sin is so bad, something has to die in their place. Uh, and that the blood, the life of, of the animal, through that, God's going to come to them. And so they get this kind of working in their imagination. But here's the thing, folks. Worship is meant to transform. It's meant to transform us. Think about it in our own context. Worship is meant to, to cultivate a new life within us. And by worship, I don't just mean the same. I mean the whole rhythm of what we do on Sunday morning. And there is a rhythm. Uh, we gather together, right? You all came this morning. You're here. Hopefully you're, if you're here. Hopefully you are here. Uh, you've been gathered by the Lord this morning. Uh, and we, we sing. We greet one another. We, we do different things to gather. And then we hear the word. That's the part we're in right now. Right? And then we respond to the word. We're going to do that at the table. And then we're sent out. That's why we do benediction. And there's this rhythm to the worship service. Isn't that what any kind of service you probably go to has some kind of rhythm like that? And that's okay. The rhythm is meant to foster in us, transform us, shape our loves, uh, an attitude that puts us back to Christ. It's meant to do this. And it's meant also to, to cultivate compassion in us. Not just change us so we love God more, but change us so we learn how to love people more. As we go out, we can serve people with compassion and grace. But in Judah, they're going through the worship, they're doing all the stuff, and nothing's happening. It's not working. And the reason it's not working is they've separated worship from transformation. So God says, I've had enough. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I've had enough of the blood of bulls and lambs. And is he saying... Is he saying that the, the, the rituals and the sacrificial system is wrong? No. He's not saying it's wrong. He gave it to them. Right? It's good. It's okay. What he's saying is you've divorced worship from intimacy and forgiveness and life in God. Or you, you've, separated, you've separated confession and repentance from meeting God's cleansing. You're, You've separated uh, the actions from what, what it's meant to foster in yourself. And so, folks, <laughs> we can do this so easily. We can come to church on a Sunday, 
and we can sing the songs, and we can lift up our hands, or we can speak in tongues, magic, or we can work ourselves up into a bit of an emotional state even. Uh, we can read scripture every day at home for a half an hour in the morning and a half an hour at night. But if we continue in sin, then the worship is just something we're doing sort of to make a checklist. We're not letting the worship transform our hearts and change our lives. That's what God wants to do with the worship. It's not that the things in the worship itself are bad, it's that our attitudes, the heart of the people, was totally missing the point. Friends, we can totally miss the point too. If we start to think that just coming and showing up at church on Sunday makes us better people, we're going down this path. If we start thinking that if I just you know, sing the right song, if I just sort of do the stuff, um, somehow that makes me better with God. Somehow that matters. doesn't matter. God says I'm appalled by it. Get over it, he says. You're missing the whole point. And that, that gets home for me. Do I show up on Sunday sometimes thinking, I'm just going to go through all this and I'm going to feel better at the end, but leave sin totally unchecked in my heart. You know, it's one thing to show up knowing I'm sinful and through the worship saying, God, I need you to forgive me. And through the worship, God brings that awareness of his forgiveness and his life and his healing to us. That's really different. But it's one thing to show up and say, I'm just going to play some songs take a bread and the juice, I'm going to go home and I'm, I don't care. I'm just going to carry on with whatever I'm doing. That's the exact same thing that's happening here. God takes it really seriously. And it's a check for us that being religious or thinking you're spiritual doesn't cut it. doesn't matter. God wants a, a, a relationship with you. He wants to transform your hearts and bring you back to himself and grow that relationship with you through Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. That's all he wants. God's after your heart. And the worship, the worship, regular rhythm of worship can begin to point us back to God. But whenever we divorce worship from the transformation of life, all we're doing is is trying to manipulate God. Uh, That's not what this is about at all. It's not what it's about. So whether, it doesn't matter what kind of church you're in, so whether whether you're uh, in a very liturgical church where you've got readings, things you read, and responses and stuff, if you start doing that, not meaning any of the words, you're starting to divorce these things. You're starting to divorce the worship of the transformation. Or in our case, we're in a Pentecostal charismatic context, right? Uh, but if we start divorcing, you know, the, the singing, uh, we start making it into a concert performance, or we turn the sermon into a sort of self-help session. I'm going to make you think positively and feel good about yourself by the end. But I'm going to totally ignore the word. We start doing that, we start heading down this path. The moment we separate worship from transformation, that we separate uh, our experience of praise from a real connection with God, we miss the point. Whether we're liturgical or charismatic or whatever, we can all kind of go off the rails, whichever it is. So God rejects the people's worship. He rejects their religiosity. Even though it's lavish. Right? They're really good at this. You know, they've been doing it for years and years and years. They've got this down. It's really impressive. The worship's really impressive. God says, I'm not it. doesn't interest me. Because you carry on in your sin and you don't care. You are walking in your life as you're going. That's a check for me. It's a check for all of us, I think. And you know the really troubling thing is about that? It's the people that think they're really religious and good who are totally off track here. 
That's <laughs> you know, do I do I use worship? Do I use my own sense of of being in a relationship with God? Whatever I think that means. Do I start hiding behind that? This would have been an evasion tactic. Like, oh, I'm good with God. I don't need to deal with this issue over here. Right? I'm good. I show up at church. I give, I give to eat. Oh, extra special now. You know, I'm really something. I volunteer. I show up the snow. What am I doing? You're going to bring a whole pack of candy to the food bank thing. Just watch me. You know, I'm going to go to all this stuff. God says, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. If you're doing that stuff, but your heart is separate from me, it's a lot. But if your heart is with me, and you choose to live out of that in acts of compassion and grace and fellowship and justice and mercy, then you've got the hope. You've got it. Bring the stuff. Go to the group. Serve. Do it. But if that relationship with God is not right, don't, don't start thinking that doing your good works is going to make you right before Him. Don't go down that path. So I say I just have much of help for that, right? Pretty intense. Pretty intense. The great danger here, friends, is to simply not care and to delude ourselves into thinking that we're good enough. We're good enough. But we're not. We're not good enough. Only the, only the transformation and forgiveness and salvation of Christ will ever be enough to save you. See, he's the only one that can make us right with the Father. He's the only one. We can do all kinds of good stuff. It doesn't matter. Jesus wants a relationship with you. That's what matters. He wants to grow that in you. And you know what's really interesting is uh, Isaiah doesn't end this passage here. He actually points them right back to God, doesn't he? So he talks about the rebellion, like he's like, you guys, it's not good. <laughs> it's really not good. Uh, it's cancer, right? Like it, the diagnosis is weak. It's really bad. And he says, you know what? And this whole pretending, it, it doesn't matter. Get rid of that. Doesn't help. The whole religiosity thing. Nope, doesn't matter. You know what we need to do? You need to come back to God. So take a look at uh, verse 16. I think, I think this whole passage is going to be funny as we finish up this, this section. This is such a beautiful part of scripture, isn't it? Um, a lot of you probably have memorized this or saying it. It's just really, 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 really good. And there's kind of two things here. I think 16 and 17 are a call to action. Bit of a call to action. What does it say? Let me read it for you. It says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to be evil, learn to do good. And then this, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. That's really good, eh? Notice the first four are sort of verbs of personal transformation. Wash and make clean, remove the evil, cease the evil, learn the good. This is what God wants to do in each and every one of our hearts. And the latter four are for the outward transformation of society. Remember I said that the inward life sort of finds its expression in the outward life? And how what they were doing in their sin was it was kind of wrecking the whole nation. Well, here God's reversing that. And look at what he says about the transformation of society. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice. Lead the widow's cause. So God wants to deal with the totality of their person, but also of their nation. 
everything inside of them and everything that's going on out there. And God binds the transformation of the heart to the transformation of society. You can't have one without the other. So it's not just a personal issue that's holding in Isaiah, it's like a cultural sickness that, that God is, is dealing with. And friends, God wants, what does this tell us? I mean, God, God wants to use us as Christians, as his people, when we are in relationship with him Christ. God doesn't just want you to cease the evil and learn to do good. He's not just interested in, in the transformation of yourself as much as he is, but he wants to use you by the Spirit, to bring about these things in his world. He wants us to be people who seek justice. He wants us to be people who learn how to correct oppression. He wants us to be people who lead the widow's cause. Being a Christian is not just about my own kind of personal salvation, my walk with God. It's meant to have this public dimension to it. It's meant to change the world. So we get that right there. So this is called to action. It's called to action. God says, if you want to change, out of this rebellion, out of this religiosity, if you want to change, learn to do good. Start putting away the evil. Start walking this out. And as you do this inside of yourself, it will then begin to make a change in the world around you. And then, not just call to action and then leading them to it. This is this is what's terrible. Sometimes, sometimes we hear a call to action and go, oh, something else for me, trying to do. Like, how am I going to have time for that? I don't know. You know, this is another thing. It's not just a call to action, it becomes a call to healing and cleansing. Something God is going to do the work in you to to heal you and cleanse you and make you capable of this life. It's not something you can drop with yourself. That's really encouraging. I can't do this on my own. God promises to do it. Look at what He says Come now. Let us reason together. Remember before, their minds were totally, totally gone from this. What did he say? Your whole head is sick. Verse 5. They can't reason. God's called them back to use their minds. Reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white. Though they're red as crimson, they'll become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, it requires a change in their own attitude. If you're willing and obedient, you shall be good. What's that mean? You will live a whole and full and good life if you seek to follow me. But if you refuse and rebel, here's the, here's the choice that he's giving them. Remember, this is their Sodom and Gomorrah state, right? They, this is all or nothing. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be by a sword. If you're willing to be, you get to eat. You get to experience the blessing, the bounty of God. But if you are in rebellion and refuse, you will be eaten. It's kind of a bad words. The mouth of the Lord is spoken. He's talking about judgment and exile. All of us have been here, folks, and I think this passage, this call to healing, sums up the whole of Isaiah in some ways. All of us have been crimson. All of us have been scarlet in our sin. What does that mean? It means you're dyed through to the core of your being. Dyed as in, like, dying, living, or something. Well, dead as well. But dyed through. You know, this is pre-bleach. So if something's really red, you can't get it out. It's as red as red, you know? It's dyed through as crimson. But what does that tell you? You can't generate a purity and whiteness in and of yourself. Impossible. It's not up to me to make my scarlet turn white. Only God can do that. God is in the business of bleaching my redness and turning it back into pure white. That's what he does. God wants to do that. 
That's the promise. Being a good person doesn't slowly dilute my redness. You know? It's not like adding drops of bleach or something. It doesn't do that. No matter what I try, I can't transform that red into white. But God, God will. And God does. Only He can do that, do that for you. And that's the promise there, is that the hope for us is completely outside of ourselves. It's objectively done in Jesus Christ. And so I can rest in assurance that what he's done will actually make the difference in my life, will actually work, will actually transform me. And so friends, the sooner, the sooner you come to Jesus and let him transform that redness into whiteness, the better it is. I tell you. And as Christians, when we, when we, this is the people of God we're talking to here, right? They didn't already following God in some ways. But if we as Christians go back to sin in some way, friends, that, that invitation is there. Come back to God. And let Him bless you. Let Him sanctify you and renew you. Because when you start that life, that is, it opens you up into the fullness of joy and bounty and blessing in God. So being a Christian is not always some sort of legalistic, narrow, narrow in the sense of, you know, not very fun kind of way of life. Following God is opening up to sort of the vast, playful fields of salvation, the fullness of life for you. That's what's there. And the sooner you can embrace that, friends, the better it is. So the passage moves, you see the movement now? From rebellion, dealing with the religiosity, to the call for repentance after that. Calls it actually to to learn to do good, and then, you know what, even as you're learning to do good, it's okay. You don't have to drop that up on your own. I'm going to transform it. I'm going to turn you into God. If you come to me, you're willing to leave. So, friends, God invites you to become clean. He calls us to see, see, you want to do good. And that's what's really encouraging here, too, I think, in Isaiah. As much as we will hear about judgment as we carry on the series, there's always this message of hope. That's God's part for you, too. Wherever you are, in feeling sin, feeling lost in your, in your life, or maybe in marriage or your family, wherever there's brokenness in your own life, God has a message of hope for you. As you come back to Him, He wants to restore and redeem and transform you. That's what's there. So, friends, as I, as I wrap this up, as we move to the table, I want to ask out of this is there anything we need to repent of? in our own hearts. Anything from this week? Any, any way in which we've been evading dealing with sin? Is there something we need to give back to God? Is there something we've been trying to cover up, maybe? But let's open our hearts to God's all-embracing love for each and every one of us. Let's allow Him to transform our lives, to turn our hearts from rebellion and religiosity. Let's turn them back to Him, back to repentance. Because he's good and he's faithful. That's what he wants to do with us. Amen.